I would encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. For those of you that perhaps have not been with us, we have been going through this epistle verse by verse as we do when we study the Bible on Sunday mornings. And today we find ourselves in chapter 2. The first three verses. Follow along as I read our text this morning. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is a very sobering text. One that exposes and denounces false teachers. And as I have thought about it this morning, I have a very daunting task ahead of me, one in which I must warn you of a threat that, frankly, for many of you, doesn't really seem to be a threat at all. Some may think, well, pastor, this is just a tempest in a teapot. This is really no big deal. These false prophets, these false teachers, yeah, they're out there, but... We don't really need to worry about them that much. But friends, I would submit to you that there is no greater danger in all of the earth, in all of the world, than that of false teaching. All of this stuff about asteroids hitting the earth and global warming and all of these nuclear holocausts, all of these things don't faze me. They're not in Scripture. We see things far worse than those in Scripture after the Lord comes and snatches away His church. But right now, the imminent danger is one of false teaching. And don't be like the proverbial frog in the hot kettle that just kind of sets there as the water continues to heat up until he is finally destroyed. So this morning... I will endeavor to contend earnestly for the faith, for the word that God has given us, knowing that perhaps for some of you, this really is not that big of a threat. But hopefully you will see that it is. Military personnel tell us that one of the greatest threats that they have is that of traitors within their own ranks. Benedict Arnold, if you will, that rise up and... Join the enemy and cause some great harm to their fellow compadres in arms. And down through the centuries, enemies have always relied on espionage and spies to infiltrate the ranks of their enemy to somehow find out what's going on and to cause great harm. But what is even more dangerous is when people within your own ranks rise up and become traitors. And Satan is very adept at infiltrating the church with with those who would ultimately do harm to the church. 
as well as raising up traitors from the inside. Those who appear to be godly and charming and spiritual and gifted. Bible verses rolling off their tongues. Convincing naive followers of their doctrinal precision. But they are like their father, the devil. They are liars disguised as angels of light. Wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, they pretend to be shepherds. Filling the true church with other people just like them. Those that are duped by their lies and their deceptions. Now, often these people, I believe, are unwitting. They're unaware of the types of heresy that they teach, the counterfeit religious system that they have learned perhaps from childhood. Maybe for many of them, they feel some loyalty to family members or maybe the church they came out of or the Bible school from which they were taught. But I believe Peter's warning this morning seems to be one that doesn't focus as much on them, even though they are a severe threat, but on the witting rather than the unwitting. Those false teachers that are fully aware that what they teach cannot withstand the scrutiny of true biblical hermeneutics, true orthodox exegesis, though they will torture many texts to somehow convince you otherwise. These are the people who are convinced that God has spoken to them or that some angel has spoken to them. And for many of them, they are filled with pride and they have convinced themselves of their own novel and fanciful interpretations of Scripture. And frankly, whole denominations have been birthed by people such as this. But regardless of how or where they received their deceptions, they are false and these people are self-serving. These are the purveyors of deception that Peter now exposes. They are, if you will, the suicide bombers that come inside the church and blow us up. These are the serpents that secretly slither in under the doorways of our churches and infiltrate our church, infiltrate our Bible schools and our seminaries and even our print and electronic media. And finally, they find their way into your heart and then into your home, and into the lives of your children. We have had them in the past that have slithered under the door of this church. And by God's grace, we've been able to somehow detect them before they did much damage. But like many like-minded churches, the shepherds of this church do all that they can to guard against this. In fact, I estimate that we turn away an average of one false teacher per week from this church. They contact me routinely wanting to know about our church, wanting to know, you know, if they can become a part of this church. And as we begin to find out who they are and what they what they teach, then I have to confront them with that and they decide to go elsewhere. Now, some might say, well, that doesn't sound very kind. Well, please understand, anyone, even if they're filled with deception, they're welcome to come. 
but they are not allowed to become a member. We would never allow them an audience to somehow um, preach their deceptions. And I would also add that many false teachers somehow slip into our lives around the church. They don't become a part of the flock, but they do so through media, through their presumed ministries. And we try to guard you against their books, their ministries, the lyrics of their songs, um, and so on and so forth. Well, this is the very danger that Peter is now addressing in Jude's epistle, which is frankly a commentary on Second Peter, we read about the clandestine activity of false teachers, and Jude tells us that they're going to creep in unnoticed. He also tells that that they are, that they are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. And we can read in Acts 20, beginning in verse 28, where Paul warned the elders at Ephesus about false teachers. He said. To them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Now, I would ask you this morning, as you prepare your heart for the word, are you on the alert? Are you vigilant? Are you on guard for your own heart, for your children? Are you discerning with what you allow to come into your living room via the television, especially when it comes to some religious teacher? Are you discerning with what you allow yourself to hear in the lyrics, especially in much of the contemporary and gospel music world? Where are some of the most common places that we need to watch for? What are the types of things that we need to look for? And what are the the most common marks of identification of a false teacher? These are the things that Peter addresses that we will look at this morning. Now, Remember the context. He has just defended the glory and the majesty and the honor and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has just defended the inspiration of Scripture, the truth that comes from God Himself, divine revelation that He said in verse 21 of chapter 1, not made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And now He's going to turn His attention to those who would endeavor to distort the truth, the truth of God, secretly introducing destructive heresies, verse 1, exploiting you with false words, verse 3, and ultimately for the purpose of popularity and power, sexual gratification and greed. So in verses 1 through 3, Peter begins this scathing denunciation of false teachers, by exposing their character and their conduct. And I would like to divide this section of Scripture for you into five categories that we'll look at this morning. He describes at least five primary categories that can help us identify false teachers. The first category that we will see is that of their methods. Their methods will be secret, number one. 
Number two, their message will be sacrilegious. Number three, their masquerade will be seductive. Number four, their morals will be scandalous. And number five, their motives will be selfish. Those who have been around false teachers or victims of their deceptions will quickly understand what I'm saying. First of all, their methods will be secret. Notice there, verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Now let me pause here for a second. Forgive the quick digression, but it is important, and it is an important observation as we endeavor to understand how to identify false prophets, false teachers. Here, Peter gives reference, false prophets also arose among the people, a reference to the constant problem that false, of false prophets that would seduce Israel. We read of that earlier in Jeremiah. But I want you to notice He says, prophets arose among Israel, past tense. Then he says, there will also be false teachers among you, future tense. Now, why not say, just as there will also be false prophets among you? Why the distinction between prophets and teachers? And I believe the answer is that by this time there were no more prophets because there there was no more need for them. God had already raised up. Those men who would complete his revelation to man. Paul was the last of the prophets, the last uh, apostle. And Peter has already stated in chapter one that the apostles, who, by the way, were also prophets, had been given a more sure word of prophecy, he says in verse 19, to which we would do well to pay attention, pay attention until the Lord comes. So you must understand that once God's revelation to man had been penned by the inspired prophets and and the apostles, that office ceased to exist. The canon was closed. God's revelation was now complete and it was given to them alone. In fact, we read in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 3, that this was confirmed, past tense, to us who heard. God also... this by the way, referring to his revelation, it was confirmed to us who heard God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So the prophets, that office is done. But now we have teachers. And the point is, many false ones are going to arise, but no more prophets. Now, there will be many that will call themselves false prophets. We hear of them all the time. But we must remember that prophets in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I really want you to hear this, were those whom God gave the ability to convey authoritative and inerrant truth to his church. Revealed to them directly from God for our edification. But at the completion of the New Testament canon, those authoritative and inerrant revelations binding upon the whole body, not just one person or one little group or one church, binding upon the whole body of Christ, all of that ceased. So too did the office of the prophet. In fact, the book of Revelation was the final revelation given to man through the apostle, the prophet, John. And in Revelation 22:18, God pronounced a severe penalty upon anyone who adds or detracts from the prophecy. And this, of course, would be the prophecy given to the church, which covers the entire church age up until 
the eternal state. And so because of this, any supposed prophecy subsequent to the final prophecy that was given there in Revelation must be considered counterfeit. So, bottom line, by implication, anyone who calls themselves a prophet from God, claiming some special revelation from him, is a charlatan, a phony. But since there is a legitimate gift of teaching, we have false teachers. Now, we go back to Peter's text here. To the first characteristic of false teachers, their methods will be secret. Notice he says in verse 1, there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Secretly, in the original language, has the idea of uh, smuggling something in undercover, under the guise of something else. And the grammar helps us see here that this is something that is creeping in, in an ongoing way, under the cloak of deception. Again, Jude Jude talks about them creeping in unnoticed. No one suspects them, but they have an agenda. And that is to promote some false teaching, to promote some counterfeit that looks like the real thing, but it's not. Now, while many false teachers are, as I say, unwitting pawns of demonic deception, I believe here he's talking about those cold, calculating con men and women that sneak into the church like a secret agent infiltrating the ranks of the enemy. These predators are premeditated deceivers who study the church. They study the truth so that they can find a way to distort the truth for their own agenda. And they creep inside and even many times rise up from our ranks. And I believe that this is a problem that is absolutely pandemic in our current day, in these last days of Laodicean apostasy. No doubt Peter remembered Jesus' warning in Matthew 7 when he said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, they dress up like a shepherd. They will call themselves preachers and teachers of the word. And you must remember that this was an admonition given in the context of Jesus' warnings against the danger of easy believism, widening the gate of the gospel to be so inclusive that anyone can come in. Anyone can be a Christian regardless of what you believe. A favorite strategy of deception that the enemy loves to promote, resulting in what I call wide gate theology that is now the popular position of apostate evangelicalism. You know how it goes. Just whisper a little prayer. I believe in Jesus. Welcome, brother, to the family of God. The great, great danger of easy believism. So, we are warned that false teachers will, not might, secretly rise from within our ranks and secretly, Peter says, introduce destructive heresies. Literally, in the original language, heresies of destruction. Well, why? Why why are they heresies of destruction? Because their deceptions will cause those who believe to be utterly ruined. Because their deceptions have eternal implications. The souls of men and women are at stake here. And certainly the wide gate that leads to destruction is what is in mind here as well. Those that will promise heaven 
but produce hell. People who will misrepresent and misinterpret Scripture. Many times they will use what I call selective sermonizing. They will preach much about the love of God, but never about the wrath of God. They will preach much about forgiveness of God, but not about submission to His Word and genuine repentance. In fact, many false teaching is characterized not so much by what they teach, but by what they leave out. All without even being noticed by the vast majority. So, their methods will be secret. In other words, they're going to fly underneath the radar of our scrutiny if we're not careful, if we're not discerning. But secondly, the message will be sacrilegious. Notice in verse 2, at the end, he gives further commentary on the nature of the destructive heresies. He says, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And here we have an analogy that Peter uses, an analogy of a master uh, or one who is in charge of a household or one who was in charge of an estate and therefore should be the one that the slaves should obey. And the, these masters would buy their slaves and these slaves would be obedient to them. But here he's saying that these false teachers will deny the master who bought them, meaning an analogy here, a master of the household of the estate to whom they should pay full allegiance. Yet, these false teachers refuse to submit to the authority of the one that they claim they are preaching about. The one that they claim they are serving. There's no devotion here. There's no allegiance to the master they claim to serve. And Peter here is reaching back into the Old Testament. The story of the exodus of Israel where the false prophets and even family members tried to seduce the Israelites to worship the false gods of the Canaanites along with Yahweh. Let's kind of blend them together. Ecumenism, by the way, is not something new. It is ancient. And you must remember that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ mixes with absolutely nothing. In Deuteronomy 13, God warned about the satanically empowered false prophets who would dream dreams and have visions and even perform signs and wonders, enticing the people to go after other gods and serve them. And again, I believe this is part of what Peter has in mind in this analogy. But God says there in Deuteronomy 13, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. And here's why. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. And what he says next now fits into the context of Peter's analogy, they have counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 13 verses 3 through 5. And what's fascinating, if you read that text, you will see that even if the false preachers and the false prophets, I should say, even if their predictions come true, even if they perform miraculous signs, 
If their message is not consistent with the word of God, if it contradicts what God has said, you're told not to listen to them. Their message is sacrilegious. It is blasphemous. It is heretical. Now think for a moment all of the ways false teachers today deny the master who bought us. Deny, by the way, denotes an habitual refusal or rejection or repudiation of something. Well, in this case, of the master. And the term master means the sovereign Lord. Jesus Christ, the one who is sovereign over all, who bought us with his very blood. And think about this, dear friends. Some will acknowledge Jesus as Savior, but not as sovereign Lord. Oh, I believe he saved me, but I will not submit my life to him. Some will acknowledge him as a great prophet, but not as God who came in the flesh, God incarnate. Some will acknowledge him as a great teacher, but not as Messiah. Some will acknowledge him as a God of love, but not a God of wrath. We'll deny that. Not a God of judgment. Many will acknowledge that he came once in humility, but they don't believe that he's going to come again in glory. Many deny his death and yet call themselves Christians. Many deny his resurrection. Many deny his atoning work on the cross and on and on it goes. In fact, the new emergent church movement is absolutely committed to dismantling every orthodox doctrine of Christianity. I can give you many examples. I think of um, the Presbyterian Church, the uh, USA. They have now adopted a new way, an alternative designation for the Trinity. Rather than speaking of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they speak of mother, child, and womb. Or they have another designation, rock, redeemer, and friend. You see how false teaching comes in and we begin to deny the Master, the Sovereign Lord who bought us? I think of the Oneness Pentecostals and the United Pentecostal Church International a group of people that deny the Trinity completely. And along with many other really bizarre doctrines. And here you have T.D. Jakes as the main spokesperson, the one that is leading the charge in this blasphemous movement. And yet nobody seems to care. Nobody seems to say much about these things. The examples are myriad, dear friends. Some will acknowledge his mercy, yet deny his sovereignty. Well, we don't like to talk about a God who is sovereign, do we? We like to be in charge. In fact, some will interpret this very phrase in such a way as to deny the master of his sovereign right to rule over his creation as he pleases. Resenting the sovereign lordship of Christ, some will use this text to support a doctrine called unlimited atonement. And forgive me, I know that this is a bit heavy, but it's important. I know that some of you are going to ask me about it. And I I debated, should I even get into this? But for a few minutes, I think I must, because I know I'm going to have to anyway, because many of you will ask, and some have in the past as well. Some people assume that the phrase, the master who bought them, supports their notion that Christ died for all mankind. 
whether they're saved or lost, including these false teachers. And that is the doctrine of unlimited atonement. Now, might I say parenthetically that I think in truth this text has nothing to do with the extent of the atonement. There's nothing in the context to warrant that, but rather it is one that exposes the sacrilegious lengths to which these false teachers will go to deny the sovereign lordship of the master they claim they're serving. But again, with respect to the Arminian notion of unlimited atonement, where people would say that God loves everyone equally, that Christ died for everyone's sin, but it is really up to you to believe and to, and to be saved and to therefore take full advantage of the gift of having your sin debt paid in full. And therefore, evangelism is nothing more than telling sinners to accept a salvation that is already theirs, that has already been purchased for them, that is already waiting for them. And so what we have to do is get them to accept that gift. And there's all kinds of ways that people manipulate folks to get them to walk aisles and, and so on and so forth. In fact, Rick Warren of the Purpose Driven Life says, and I quote, I can lead anyone to Christ if I can find the key to that person's heart, end quote. There's an example of what flows out of this, what I believe to be errant theology. Now, the problem is simply this. If the atonement covers everybody, then why does God send unbelievers to, to hell if their sins have already been paid for? How do you explain that? Sounds like double jeopardy, doesn't it? Why would Jesus say in John 3.18 that he who does not believe has been judged already if he was going to go to the cross and satisfy divine justice for them, for everybody? And sadly, most evangelicals, I do not believe, really understand the dangerous implications of this teaching. In this system, both the occupants of heaven and hell are recipients of the same act of atonement by Christ, their Savior. How do you explain that? The only difference is those in heaven accepted the gift and those in hell didn't. And I believe this is refuted by numerous passages. I'll not even uh, digress to get into all of that. And by the way, logically, this moves towards universalism where, well, if Christ died for everybody, then everybody's going to heaven. This kind of atonement is therefore limited in its power and in its effect, because it is at the mercy and the will of the sinner. And so, therefore, you must understand with this line of thinking, Jesus died for everyone potentially, but no one specifically. The problem is, if God's wrath was satisfied on the cross for all mankind, then why must anybody be damned? If you believe in an unlimited atonement, then Jesus' atonement was not an actual, specific atonement, but only a potential one. He did not purchase salvation for anyone in particular. He only removed some kind of a, of a spiritual barrier to make salvation possible. Therefore, since most people will, will reject Christ and will be damned, His atonement was basically useless. When he was on the cross, when he said, it is finished, he should have said, it has begun. It is now a possibility. It is now a potential. The option of salvation is now available. You see, with this system, 
You must understand this. It is the sinner, not a sovereign God, who determines the extent of the atonement. Christ's atoning work is incapable of saving anyone unless you allow him to do so by cooperating. You have to do something to complete it. And again, another problem with this whole deal is how can someone who is spiritually dead possibly do anything? You see how subtle it can be denying the master who bought us, the master being the sovereign, absolute ruler, the sovereign Lord who rules over all his creation. Many Christians resent his sovereign rule and they're desperate to somehow distance themselves from a God who would dare choose some to be saved and not all. They think that is unfair. And frankly, what is unfair is that he would save anyone. Beloved, please hear this. Christ died only for the elect. Not one precious drop of his blood was spilt in vain. You see, an unlimited atonement that is incapable of saving all sinners from God's wrath is no atonement at all. It, it is a deficient atonement. You must understand that he died for all he had chosen in eternity past. The atonement is limited to those alone. I simply cannot see in Scripture, nor can I imagine in my mind, a salvation that is some kind of a nebulous potential that helplessly awaits spiritual cadavers to somehow exercise their volition. That makes no sense to me. It is not some spiritual possibility constrained by the choices of fallen man. Salvation is a definite reality for all whom God has foreordained, foreloved, chosen, elected, and predestined to salvation. And it's all through Scripture. Deny it as you will, and as many may. God loved us, he says in 1 John 4.10, and sent his Son to be the propitiation, in other words, the satisfaction for our sins. The idea being specifically, actually, not potentially. Christ died for his elect and his atoning work is limited to those who believe. And those who will believe will be those whom he draws unto himself. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. John 6.44 Salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9.16 And on it goes. And you must also understand parenthetically that in no way does God coerce the human will to be saved. He doesn't turn us into some robot. But in some inscrutable and mysterious way that we cannot understand, the Holy Spirit causes the human will to freely and voluntarily choose to believe in Christ as Savior. Another miracle of miracles. But oh, how we hate such a doctrine. We love our independence. We have a rabid commitment to self-determination. And oh, how we despise a God who would dare choose. But friends, that is the God of the Bible. A God who in His mercy has chosen. And who has decreed. Another example of how easy it is to deny the Master is one that is a bit more relevant to what we've been seeing in the news here lately with the shooting at Virginia Tech. 
It's fascinating to me when I listen to the news regarding all of this that very often uh, people will bring in religious experts to somehow explain this whole thing. And it's interesting how many evangelical leaders choose to distance God from the recent massacre there at Virginia Tech, subtly denying the master of his sovereign rule. For example, one journalist asked one leading evangelical, why would a God of love allow this to happen? Have you heard that one? That comes up quite a bit. came up after you know, 9-11, Katrina, all these types of things. And the answer was, and I'm paraphrasing his here, here uh, we can't blame God on this. We, we have to blame it on evil, implying that somehow God, God's back here. He didn't have anything to do with any of this. God is a God of love. He's not in charge. And some would say that he is as shocked as we are with such a horrible thing and powerless to prevent it. This is a God that is, is kind of innocent, a benevolent bystander that is hoping that more people will accept his love, but is really powerless to get that to happen. Imagine if evangelical leaders spoke the truth. When someone says, why would a God of love allow this to happen? Imagine if they said, my friend, not only did God allow this to happen, he ordained it. Because he is sovereign over all of his creation. Because according to Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Amos 3.6, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And many, many other verses. You see, people fail to understand. And I hope this doesn't sound cold and callous to those dear people that died in that unfortunate event. But the fact is, my friends, everybody is going to die. Some will languish for years on a hospital bed. Some will be killed in the next few minutes out there on the interstate. Some will be shot by a madman. Thousands die of AIDS every day in Africa. And on and on it goes. Sooner or later, we all will die. And all those who died so tragically were going to die someday. And because the wages of sin is death, everybody's going to die. And God tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And every one of us are living on borrowed time. So when people ask, well, why would God ordain such a thing to happen? I think of at least three reasons. I don't know the mind of God, but I certainly can see in Scripture how this plays itself out over and over again. God would ordain something like this to happen to ultimately glorify himself when he someday puts an end to Satan and to sin and glorifies himself in the wrath of his eternal judgment. I can see, secondly, that he would glorify himself in this act by giving yet another day of mercy to unbelievers who are now allowed to live to see the truth of the gospel. I can see that, thirdly, he would glorify himself by pouring out his mercy and his saving grace upon those who would see such a tragedy and realize, you know what, that could have been me. It may be me in the next few minutes. 
I've got to get my life right with God. I realize that there is a God. And I want to submit myself to Christ. For indeed, it is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. What a merciful God. You see, the point is, every death screams to the living, be ready. Be ready. And we must realize, dear friends, that God's saving purposes are always concealed in calamity. Now, I'm not so naive to think that if the world were to hear what I just said, and perhaps with some of you, especially those of you that do not know Christ or who are ignorant of his word, when the world hears something like this, they think that man is an absolute moron. This is foolishness. And you need to expect that. They have no capacity to discern the truth. So you don't, by the way, begin with the deep things of God explaining the, the, the attributes of God and the glorious nature of His redemptive purposes and so on and so forth. You don't begin with that. You begin with the simplicity of the Gospel. My friends, death for unbelievers results in judgment. Death for believers results in glory. And what a merciful God to be so forbearing with sinners as to allow them to live another day and to constantly be showing them that's going to happen. You never know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You better be ready. That is a merciful God and He glorifies Himself in these kinds of things. So back to the text. God speaks through His inspired prophet describing the essence of the false teacher's blasphemy. They even deny the Master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Meaning... Imminent and eternal damnation will be their fate. So their methods will be secret. Their message will be sacrilegious. Thirdly, their masquerade will be seductive. Notice what he says in verse 2. And many will follow. Whenever I think of a phrase such as this, I think about Jesus' words in Matthew 7. You know, Jesus warned about a narrow gate and a wide gate. A narrow way in which we must strive to enter through repentance and confession and self-denial, by believing only the truth of the gospel, versus a broad way of hypocrisy and easy believism and churchianity and self-indulgence. In the narrow gate, there's going to be the few. In the wide gate, there's going to be the many. And here he talks about the many who will follow the false teacher Jesus, by the way, went on to say in verse 13 of Matthew 7, the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. My friends, false teachers will attract the many, not the few. They will attract the many, not the few. Their masquerade will be so seductive their words so seductive that it will seem irresistible. They will seduce the naive and the ignorant with their charm and their ear-tickling messages. As we read earlier in Jeremiah in our Scripture reading, when we look at the Old Testament false prophets in particular, you will find that typically they predicted unconditional prosperity without repentance. Don't worry about following God here and doing what He said. He's going to take care of us. And oh, don't we all want to hear that? In fact, rosy predictions are the stock and trade of all charlatans. This is how they attract a crowd. 
Not many people are going to want to hear the truth. If they did, this church would be filled with thousands of people, as many other churches would be around the world that endeavors to contend earnestly for the truth. You see, they will appear to be deep and godly. After all, look at all the masses that follow them. They're filling up stadiums for crying out loud. Millions of people are buying their books. Yes, there's always going to be the many. And there's also the few. But in truth, these people are as shallow as water on a plate. They're alienated from God. That's why Jesus went on to describe the fate of these false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, who are inwardly ravenous wolves. He said in verse 21, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everybody that claims to be a Christian is truly a Christian. But here's the distinguishing characteristic. He who does the will of my father who is in heaven. If you say you're a Christian, let's see Christ in your life. Indeed, they deny the master. They refuse to submit to his lordship in their life. Their masquerade is one of self-deception. And it's so deceiving that they have convinced themselves of their own spirituality. And therefore others as well. And that's why Jesus finally said in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So their masquerade will be seductive. Fourthly, their morals will be scandalous, the text tells us. And many will follow their sensuality, it says. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Sensuality in the original language denotes an unbridled and habitual lifestyle of sexual immorality. Oh, you won't see it publicly, at least not for a while. But that's what will be going on in their minds, in their hearts, and in the privacy of their motel rooms. You see, because they are unsaved, the Spirit of God is not within them. There is no restraint of the flesh. They have no ability to do that on their own. And they have rejected the Lordship of Christ. They're not submitting to His rule and His reign in their life. That's not an issue. And so the result is a life of debauchery. Many will follow them because ultimately their message has nothing to do with the things that we don't like to hear. It has nothing to do with repentance from sin. It has nothing to do with self-denial, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being separate from the world, holy living, submitting to the Lordship of Christ, on and on and on. Nothing to do with that. Instead, the theme of their message will always be something that appeals to the flesh. A message of self-indulgence, not self-denial. And that's why Paul warned in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Tell me what I want to hear, preacher. Tell me about a God who winks at my sin. Tell me about a God that I can manipulate. Tell me about a God who will cause me to be successful. 
Give me a God that will make me wealthy. That will take away all of my illnesses and my diseases. Because after all, life is all about me. Not God and His glory. The result will be their morals will be scandalous. Isn't it common these days to hear of some quote-unquote evangelical leader who is now exposed some public scandal now of what's going on in the privacy of his life. And that's why Peter says, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Well, of course, people see these false teachers and they say, yep, there goes another Christian, hypocrites, phonies. The gospel's a myth. These people aren't any different than me. They're not any different than anybody else. There's no transformation. There's no new creature in Christ where the old things pass away and behold, new things come. That's a bunch of hooey. Look at the. There's one of their leaders right there. Their methods will be secret. Their message will be sacrilegious. Their masquerade seductive. Their moral scandalous. And finally, their motives will be selfish. Verse 3, it says, and in their greed... A term that means an unbridled and insatiable appetite for money and material wealth. In their greed, they will exploit, which means they will cheat. They will swindle. They will defraud you. And how will they do that? With false words, he says. I can hear it now. Come to Jesus and he will make you prosperous. Just send in your seed faith money to my ministry and plant that seed and Watch what Jesus will do. Come to me and I will give you a word from God. I have a special gift. I can tell you your fortune. And of course, I would appreciate a small love offering. Come and I will lay hands on you and I will make sure that all of your diseases are healed. Or for a small love offering, I'd be happy to pray over a hanky and send that to you. And you can apply that to your disease and watch what God will do and on and on. And folks, it's not the few that follow that type of stuff. It's the many. It's people, desperate people, people in need of the truth, people in need of the gospel who fall for that stuff. Their words are false words. False in the original language is plastos. We get our word plastic from that. It means something that is made up, something that is not genuine, something that is phony. And what you will find over and over again, and it never ceases to amaze me how clever they can be. And of course, I understand that Satan very often is the one and his minions giving them the doctrines to believe. But through tortured exegesis and distorted logic, these false teachers will conjure up phony, can I say plastic, doctrinal truths, quote-unquote, that will very quickly melt away under the light and the scrutiny of the truth. Why do they do that? To cheat people. To cheat people out of their money. For sexual favors. For power. And on and on it goes. And we will see more of that as we continue to look at these truths in days to come. Dear friends, let me say this in conclusion this morning. If it is a bestseller, it's probably false. If it's mega, it's probably the many, not the few. 
if it's ecumenical, if it's signs and wonders, if it's interdenominational, if it's seeker sensitive, these types of things be suspect. If it's materialistic, if it's worldly, be careful. But my friends, the key of all of it is simply this. What are they saying? Does it contradict biblical truth? Which means you have got to know the truth in order to spot a counterfeit. May we all be vigilant to this end, guarding our heart and our families against the ingenious deceptions of the enemy. May we all learn how to identify false teachers and ask the Spirit of God to give us the wisdom and discernment and the boldness to reject them. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word and thank You how You have given it to us in such a way as to protect us, to shield us from those charlatans that would endeavor to not only contradict Your truth, but completely malign it and lead so many, so many astray. Lord, we thank You that it is by Your grace, not by our wisdom, not because we've figured anything out, but solely because of Your mercy and Your grace that You have caused us to know the truth. And by Your power, we are able to live it. Lord, I pray that You will take what is said today and cause the seeds of these truths to find lodging in hearts where they will bear much fruit. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.